0: Just one day's headlines in the New York Times. On April 23rd, it says 135 million face starvation. That could double. Infection turns factory towns into hot zones. Banks steered richest clients to federal aid. And that's only page one. The editorial on the same day says COVID-19 threatens global safety net. There's a letter to the editor. The same paper concerned about warehousing of seniors and people with disabilities. I think we're seeing a pattern here. These are just the latest examples of what our guest today, Liz Harris, has written about in an article on Tom Dispatch titled, Inequality and the Coronavirus, or How to Destroy American Society from the Top Down. Coronavirus is unquestionably hitting less well-off people much, much harder than people who have significant means. When Congress was writing the $2 trillion coronavirus bailout bill, the big corporations, of course, sent their lobbyists up to Capitol Hill to make sure they got what they wanted. In this rather shocking new gilded age, where there are hyper-rich, very few, and a large number of working people, often just scraping by, This pandemic is quickly intensifying the economic and health divides. Our guest writes, in fact, lessons from the catastrophe of Katrina resonate heavily today as the poor suffer and die while the rich and their political allies begin to circle the ruins, seeing opportunities to further enhance their power. Thank you so much for being with us, Liz.
1: Thanks for having me. an honor
0: to be here. Uh, The Reverend Liz Thea Harris is co-chair with Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign and author of the book, Always With Us? What Jesus Really Said About the Poor. Well, as a casual reader of history, it seems that once national attention becomes focused on harsh economic injustice, the powers that be do as little as necessary to reduce the public pressure. That happened after the last Gilded Age at the turn of the last century and after uh, people like Upton Sinclair, Emma Goldman, and many others could not be ignored. They made a lot of noise. Now the focus of your article seems to be that a pandemic of inequality has existed long before the present nightmare hit. And in the age of... of, uh, I'm going to flip the page here. Sorry. Shoot. (sighs) And in the age of Trumpism and the way America is dealing with the plague greatly exacerbates the inequality and puts people who are already poor at deadly new risk. And perhaps it doesn't have to be that way. I grew up with a steel brace in the 1950s with a steel brace on my leg from ages six to nine. It wasn't what your mother had, Liz. She had polio, which in the 50s panicked Americans. You write that you learned a lot from your mother. You say, she taught me that the dividing line between sickness and well-being loses its meaning in a society that doesn't care for everyone. Tell us more about that, please.
1: So I indeed learned a lot from my mom, um, who was a great advocate and organizer for social justice her entire life, um, who taught me actually a lot about the limits of charity and the need for doing justice. Uh, and I experienced a lot of the lessons that I learned from her. Um, you know, I, I, write in this article, I remember walking in Waukee, Wisconsin, which is where I was raised, um, in the snowy feet, you know, streets of, of the city. Um, and you know, I would walk with my arm in arm with my mom and not just once, but many times she would fall. Right. And, and when she would fall, when I was a little kid, I would fall right alongside of her. Um, I usually couldn't keep her up. And, you know, I, I think of that as a, as a kind of a prism to look through um, issues of poverty and injustice and inequality all the time now. Just that, that we're all impacted by, by injustice. Uh, what we've learned in this pandemic, indeed, is that if one person doesn't have a place to shelter in place, just if one person doesn't have health care, uh, that we actually are all more at risk um, uh, both morally, but then also materially, physically. Um, mm. and, and, and here in this nation, a nation that before this pandemic hit had 43%, nearly half of its population poor or with low income, wow. you know, 40% of folks that can't Afford a four hundred dollar emergency. Sixty percent right. of people who can't afford a one thousand dollar emergency. Well, this pandemic has been, you know, a four hundred or a thousand, a, a, a very, you know, tremendous emergency for so many people, and and now we have more and more people being welcomed into the ranks of the poor and yeah. possessed. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that is, that is really true. It's made a huge, sudden difference, and it was bad to start with. And our president has decided to make war on the much-beloved American postal system. It has never been profitable, nor is it designed to be. No doubt that drives Trump crazy. It does seem that if something is not creating a profit, it simply has no worth. Of course, that way of seeing the world fits perfectly with the never actually accurate belief in American rugged individualism. As a result of the widespread acceptance of this myth, when people lose their jobs because of economic and technical changes, they lose their income through no fault of their own. As you know, many people blame themselves because of that myth of rugged individualism. You write that our individual uh, our sickness, when considered at all, is seen as an indication of uh, individual limitations or moral failures, rather than a symptom of a sick society, end of quote. There is evidence that the earth's air and water is very suddenly clearing up as a result of the stay-at-home necessity, and many environmental leaders like Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, I guess it is, have been quite loud and clear in the, that the way our society has been functioning so dependent on fossil fuels Itself has already been truly sick. It is curious to me that the most powerful, who somehow seem to be almost entirely older white men, in their ways of trying to address the corona crisis, are turning a blind eye to this aspect of the long standing sickness. Your thoughts?
1: So I learned when I was doing grassroots anti poverty organizing amongst poor and homeless families in Philadelphia. Uh, we had a close relationship with a recovery program, a drug recovery program, really the only one that existed in, in North Philadelphia. Um, uh, and and there is a leader there uh, who taught me this saying. He said, in order to fully recover, we must first recover the society that has made us sick. Um. I, I think about that um, all the time, right? Uh, and what is... What is a sick society? A sick society is is one where 62 million workers, before this crisis, were making less than a living wage. I mean, a sick society is a a, a country that um, has 15 million families who can't afford water um, and four million households whose water is poisoned. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a mm-hmm. sick society mm-hmm. is is the fact that if you're working full time at minimum wage, there is not a town, a county. Uh, a village anywhere in this country where you can afford to rent a two-bedroom apartment, right? right? I mean, this is not, you know, the fault of individual poor people who aren't working hard, aren't studying hard enough, are too lazy, crazy, or stupid to mm-hmm. to come out of poverty. This is a, an issue that is structured into the very fabric of our nation. Um, and and indeed, when you're talking about how, uh, how the idea that the Postal Service wasn't designed to make a profit, that to have a business person in charge of this of this country right now, that that, you know, is anathema to him. Um, you know, what we're seeing is the privatization um, in this moment and before this moment yeah. of all of our public goods. And mm. and. And that's going to only happen more. And and that is the product of a sick society. A society is set up, you know, as our our nation says in our founding documents, um, to help provide for the general welfare and to promote the the common defense, right? I mean, a society is established to to make life better for people, right? Um, But then, instead, what we're seeing the way that our society is is structured is that is that it protects the interests of a very few rich yes. um, and lets the less rest of us, you know, just kind of squander ourselves and fend for ourselves in the wilderness.
0: Uh, it seems that some powers want to go back to the glorious days of feudalism. You know, <laughs> many many <laughs> families really are desperate, waiting for personal protective equipment against COVID nineteen. And especially for life-saving ventilators for hospitals, you say that the healthcare system is seemingly structured in defiance of the people it should serve, functioning as yet another way to maximize profit at the expense of millions. We do have for-profit health centers, for-profit hospitals. Uh, what about what about that the hospital system? Well, I,
1: I think this is a really important point, right? I mean, so we've passed four stimulus bills now. Um, yes. uh, since the pandemic um, was declared a pandemic, right? And not one of them has been about healthcare for the uninsured, right? I mean, we're in a public health crisis, and somehow, despite trillions of dollars being funneled into Wall Street, there's no money being funneled into to actual healthcare. Sure, there's been some conversation about free testing and even free COVID treatment, but only COVID treatment, right? If a person has diabetes and hypertension and and high blood pressure on top of that, that's not covered, right? So we know people that are, are going and getting tests and then can't afford all right. the things that need to happen. Um, and, and so, I mean, this this is just one example, right? We have uh, hundreds of rural hospitals that have closed over the last couple of years, yes. and many of them are, are laying, uh, you know, abandoned in communities that have literally almost no access to health care. Or in Philadelphia, where I got my, organizing legs, you have Hanneman Hospital right in the center of the city. It it closed down about a year ago because a a rich speculator investor bought it and now is refusing to open it, even though it's in great shape, um, premier healthcare, um, because he's basically bribing the city to pay him a million dollars a month to even open up Uh, in a public health crisis, right? I mean, this is defiance of, of a system that is supposed to be set up to serve the people, right? I mean, what is health and healthcare, but protecting people's lives. And yet what we have is example after example of people being denied any healthcare, both in this pandemic and before it, I mean, what we have 87 million people in this country who, uh, either have insurance but they can't afford right. to use it or don't have health insurance right i mean this is this is this shows this deep inequality that exists um, and is is continued to exist in this pandemic
0: for those who may have just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive we're talking with uh, the reverend liz theo harris uh, who's co-chair of uh, the poor people's campaign with the reverend william barber we're talking about A different angle of the coronavirus, how it's really a sick society that started, you know, that was already there. And what's going on, it just exemplifies it and amplifies it tremendously. And of course, we have all kinds of charity, such as Feeding America, which seems to be doing a good thing. If we have TVs, we've seen huge lines, people waiting for food. Looks like the 30s, kind of. We appropriately thank and celebrate the incredibly hardworking medical and first-line people for their devotion and the great personal risks that they take. You write, with some noted optimism, in this coronavirus moment, many more Americans are finally awakening to the bitter consequences, the damage wrought when even a single person does not have access to the resources he or she needs to live decently or, for that matter, to survive. (sighs) Please tell us uh, some of the awakenings that you have perceived. I'm not sure I'm seeing them. I, I need some optimism.
1: Well, I mean, I, I'm really inspired by the work of many folks that are, are, uh, in the words of a Fight for 15 leader, a low-wage worker um, who worked ah. at McDonald's. Um, whose backs are against the wall, but all we can do is push, right? And so so this is this idea that those who have little or nothing to lose can help to kind of push and free the society for everybody. And so I, I am seeing some very inspiring actions, really bold actions, you know, these rent strikes that are uh-huh. are cropping up all over the place. Um, you know, we have a lot of leaders out in Los Angeles and other parts of California that are part of them, but also Virginia, also New York, you know, all, all over the place, um, there's uh some some powerful organizing happening amongst homeless folks um who sometimes are able to win uh getting into hotels uh in this virus um and who are vowing to not leave that hotel until their city until their town actually has some affordable housing options for for all its people right mm. um there's amazing organizing amongst farm workers um agricultural workers uh Many of who are undocumented immigrants, right. many of whom are working in, in really, um, undignified positions for poverty wages, um, who are doing much of the essential work of us having still a food supply, right? Who have, who have been able to win on-site hospitals, who have been able to win, you know, on-site care, uh, for, for, you know, communities that have been really forgotten for a long time. There's, there's, you know, individual acts of people, you know, meeting their neighbors' needs. Um, but then there's also you know an outpouring, I think of of uh, little local spontaneous struggles of those that are impacted um, trying to you know build something bigger and 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 what we see in this poor People's campaign, a national call for more revival that I have the honor mm-hmm. of of helping to co-chair, yes. is that you know, in states across this country, poor and impacted folks, poor and low-income people themselves are, are doing some amazing, valiant, heroic work. And there are more and more people that are hearing and, and seeing and, and asking how, how it could be this way, that our nation could have gotten to the place where we're at, but also then trying to figure out what it looks like. Like to kind of link arms, you know, virtually these yeah, days because yeah, folks have to do it safely um, and and socially distance. But but to to get involved in in the work of justice and and we're seeing you know the numbers of homeless union chapters you know double during this pandemic. We're seeing a kind of nonviolent Medicaid army of the poor starting to develop in Pennsylvania and Virginia and Vermont. We're seeing you know um, poor and impacted folks who are coming together with people of faith and and other activists and, and saying we have some bold, visionary ideas out there and we're going to build the power to be able to enact them.
0: And of course, uh, Bernie Sanders talked about Medicare for All. That would have helped build more hospitals uh, in the uh, Midwest in areas where they're, they're lacking, where people can't get to them. And I'm reminded in reading, I, I like to read history, about uh, the Titanic, the news covered the wealthiest people helping out the the you know the other people getting them onto uh, lifeboats etc but but they didn't focus on the poorer people doing that as if somehow wealthy people doing it was somehow more uh, it was better and I'm I must say on on the news these days you know they try to have a kicker at the end with with people doing nice things and it's oftentimes you know people who have means being philanthropic and that's you know, I, w- I wonder if that's part of the problem itself. It does seem a very long tradition that philanthropies and charities play. Very wealthy people try to ease their consciences by giving to charity. The, that age-old process, of course, reinforces belief in the legitimacy of a few being super wealthy. This way, the government doesn't have to take any real responsibility Of course, when Southern churches insist they are the only legitimate means to help the needy and bristle at the thought of government involvement, that they have an effective tool for rigidifying the current economic structure. Now, $100 million medical-directed grants by people like Bill Gates, of course, are appreciated and vitally necessary today, no question about it. Meanwhile, what goes on is, as you note, Many of the most essential tasks in our economy are done by the least paid workers. I believe this realization is one of the things that motivated Dr. Martin Luther King in 1968 when he, just before he was murdered, kicked off the poor people's struggle, first involving sanitation workers in Memphis, I believe, who we are all dependent on. Visibility was and remains needed. Now, you're co-chair with William Barber of the current Poor People's Campaign, carrying on. How does the work of that organization fit what you, doc, quote, Dr. King is saying that, quote, the prescription for the cure rests with accurate diagnosis of the disease? What I have described so far, charity, philanthropy, in what ways is that not up to the task of fully and accurately diagnosing the disease running throughout America and the world?
1: Yeah, so I think this is a really important question, right? I mean, I think there are a lot of people talking Right now, about you know even poverty, even um, the kind of unemployment that that many are are experiencing now. Um, but but again, if we if we if we think that that's an anomaly, if we think that that's just a fluke, um, and not that actually deep poverty and inequality are structured into our very society, then the kind of response um, that's needed to really address the problem um might be wrong right so if this is just an accident that happened then charity might you know help us along our way um but if this is a deeper problem then it needs a, a deeper structural solution and so so that that Dr. King quote reminds me of another where he talked about what like that we need a revolution of values and he says a true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day, we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not constantly be beaten and robbed as they make their way on life's life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And so wow, I really think quote. in this moment, it's a brilliant quote, right? It, 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 yeah, it, it, it just explains, um, it's, it's from um, his um, trumpet of conscience, um, which is one of the last um, publications that he put out um, before he was killed. Um, and it's much of where his thoughts about building a poor people's campaign are are laid out. And so he, he did this massive lecture series in December, November and December of 67 it was on the Canadian broadcasting radio station actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, um, and he put out really a vision for uniting and organizing the poor, but also one that connected the issues of racism and poverty and militarism, right. You know, yes. as the Vietnam war was yes, late raging, as, mm-hmm. um, there had been some significant gains in civil rights, but, um, he still made this point, like, what good is it to have one uh, seat at the lunch counter mm-hmm. if you still don't have the money to buy a hamburger, right? Uh-huh. And so he started to, to connect all of these different issues. And I really think this pandemic moment is a moment for us to look to the radical king and to the last years of king's lives, um, and especially to read the Trumpet of Conscience, because I think, you know, his social critique there is still so applicable, even though it's, you know, 53 years uh, away. Um, uh, and but but this idea that true compassion is more than swinging a coin to a beggar, but it comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And I think this is just all the more true in this moment, in this nation, the richest nation in the world, for the richest moment in history, to have you know uh, 26 million unemployed in the last five weeks, to have already before this pandemic 50 percent of kids in food insecure homes, to have 250,000 people dying from poverty a year, um, about 700 a day before this pandemic hit. And when the World Food Program says that there's going to be a huge rise of hunger all over the world, including in rich countries like the United States, um, we should be worried and we we should heed Dr. King's warning that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring.
0: Yeah, wouldn't it be nice? Ah, well, well, there's a reason he was killed. Mm. We, yeah, that was, yeah, at certain interests had to do it because largely I think because of the uh, poor people struggle connecting poor people throughout the world, including Vietnam. We just couldn't have that. But that's a topic for another day. You say that, and this is clearly true. Levels of poverty and inequality in this country now outmatch the Gilded Age, which 1890 to about 1905. All of this, in turn, laid the groundwork for the rapid spread of the disease and death via COVID-19 pandemic and its disproportionate impact on poor people and people of color. There's no question that the coronavirus is striking more black people than white. As you write, the Centers for Disease Control urges everyone to social distance and work from home to reduce personal and community risk of the spread of COVID-19 Not everybody can do that. How does economic inequality play out in the unbalanced spread of this deadly disease?
1: So, I mean, this is a huge um, part of of the spread and the devastation of this disease, um, is that the racial and and economic inequalities that existed before are only... um, both widening and deepening this crisis in communities. So, you know, I live in New York city, the five, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, zip codes yes. that have the most, um, people who have died from this virus, um, are zip codes where you have a lot of quote unquote essential workers. Um, and they're, you know, the median income is, is below the poverty line. Right. Um, uh, but then the five uh, zip codes that have the least amount of death um, as a result of coronavirus are are, are zip codes where people are, are living well yeah. um, and comfortably. Yeah. And that, that's not an accident because of people having to go to work, because they're compelled, because to. they're essential workers, yes. um, people being compelled to go to work uh, because... That, you know, a one missed paycheck means not being able to pay your life bill, not being able to pay your rent, not being able to put food on your table. Um, people uh, are already living in close quarters. Yeah. Um, and so you can shelter in place. But if if it's many people who are having to go out and, and work, um, who are all then coming back to the same place, you know, I have lots of friends. Who have people that are quarantined in their house, who are sick with the virus, and there's only one working bathroom. So you know how how else are people gonna are gonna be? You know, so you're there sick, and everyone in your family. If there's 12 people, or if there's 15 people living in your apartment, you know they're all exposed, right? Um, this is true amongst prisoners, all the more. This is true amongst um, uh, the homeless populations, um, all the more. Uh, you know, so people don't have uh, the resources to, to to you know, get themselves out of this or to even be um, as safe as people need to be in this moment. Um, and then you also have, you know, uh, you already had asthma, you already had diabetes, you already had other, you know, health problems, many of them that have been unmet because you don't have adequate health care um, so then you put that on top and you're exposed more, So more people are dying. And then what hospitals, what healthcare centers are doing is choosing who to triage. And, and, um, they're no. not choosing, you know, people that have, uh, a lot of health problems already. They're not choosing people that had a lot of disabilities already. You're not choosing folks that didn't have any healthcare, uh, uh, before, you know, and so that's just happening. Right. And and that's happening, you know, in my city, New York. But that's happening, especially in many of these southern states, right? Where sixty percent of the rural hospitals um, have closed, um, you know, over wow, some 60%. some time now. I mean, it just, it's just—it's—it's you know, this is this pandemic is on top of our already. Maybe it was silent, but already an existing pandemic, and that was racism, and that was poverty, and that was inequality, and that was deep suffering. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I hope this is being looked at because it's certainly hitting people of less means much more dramatically. I mean, quite frankly, there's there's once a week the trash is picked up here. These are real people who are doing it. We need them to do it. They, you know, their income, and they have to do it. We depend on them, and I worry very much about that. But, you know, the economic system, the way it's set up, I think, you know, they should be paid more. You provide, Liz, a rather shocking quote uh, related to what we're talking about from a Louisiana legislator to a lobbyist Mm -hmm. after Hurricane Katrina and and with that in mind. Share it, please, rough as it is.
1: I mean, basically, that that God did what they couldn't do, right? This idea that, like, that the clearing of of the poorest communities across New Orleans um, because of Hurricane Katrina, uh, was what real estate agencies and and the rich and profiteers had been wanting to do for generations. I remember actually sitting in a meeting, a couple months after Katrina hit, um, uh, with with a couple of real estate folks uh, um, who who said that this had been their plan all along, and they pulled out this map and showed it to the group of us that were sitting there and said, you know, this we are going to build this here, we're going to build this there, we're going to build this here, and now. We can do it because, you know, the poor have been uh, pushed out um, because the storm has raised all of these um, buildings. And now this community is able for us to just, um, you know, turn it into a playground for the rich.
0: Well, growing up in Boston, just outside of Boston, I remember there used to be a low income, poor neighborhood called the West End. Well, it was demolished and put up really fancy office buildings and expensive apartment buildings. Wasn't this convenient? And in the wake of Hurricane Katrina back in 2005, New Orleans City Hospital closed its doors. So is the coronavirus, it seems like it's having a similar effect. Is that right?
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think that, um, again, you know, I used the example of Hanneman Hospital before, um, you know, uh, but there's other places that were already closed and aren't opening up, and are using this, you know, as an excuse. Or or places that are, you know, uh, uh, the hospital where um, right after the Poor People's Campaign happens in '68, um, there's uh, healthcare workers in South Carolina who go on strike um, and build 1199, um, the Hospital and Healthcare Workers Union. Uh-huh. Uh, the hospital that they they did that original organizing drive where people, where poor black women, you know, uh, basically organized the strike for for a long period of time and you know caused much suffering in their families, but they were able to you know organize and and build this powerful union out of it. That that hospital in this crisis laid off 900 workers, mm. right? Mm. Um, uh, Burger King, the week after the pandemic hit, um, sent a notice to their employees that they were all getting pay cuts of 10%. Um, so, uh, because this is what we have to do in these times, right? At the same time as Burger King and McDonald's and all the biggest um, corporations were on the Capitol Hill, you know, yes. lobbying mm-hmm. so that they were going to make sure that paid sick leave wasn't included in the stimulus that them yeah, and that they were going to get bailed out, you know? Um, and so I think what we're seeing in many different ways is how the wealthy and how corporations are profiting indeed from this pandemic, you know, how drug companies are increasing um, their um, drug costs in this time, um, you know, right at a moment when actually we should be nationalizing those (laughs) pharmaceuticals um, and, and, and making sure that people can have the kind of medicines, both for this virus and for every other public health concern they have. Because, again, if you have a sick people, you're going to have a pandemic spread even more. Um, and, and I think over and over again, we're seeing, you know, with the stimulus checks, right, the yeah. example that, um, that the banks were able to and the debt collection agencies were able to claim those um, so that, so, uh, so that their debts would be paid, but didn't matter if the, the families who were expecting those checks and they were too paltry and small to begin with, but they were still going to be something. Right. They're seized before families can even have. And and even with these small business provisions, I mean, both it's inadequate and it's small. And, you know, the first one, you know, uh, ran out in a couple of days. And right. this one that's currently being passed is also too little, but it's also going to be bailing out the banks, not the small businesses. It's going to be, you know, payments debt payments to banks. Um, And so we just see trillions and trillions of dollars, you know, where the rich are just profiting from this pandemic and, and leaving so many people to suffer and die.
0: Ah, what a great system it is for the feudal lords. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about inequality and the coronavirus, how to destroy American society from the top down. Our guest is the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, who's with the Poor People's Campaign. And many twelve-step programs call for a searching and fearless moral inventory. Searching and fearless moral inventory, so that we may find and address the weaknesses in a system which contribute to the serious problem which has arisen and can no longer be ignored now two years ago the poor people's campaign and the wonderful institute for policy studies released an audit of america sort of a inventory tell us please about what was found in that inventory of poverty and the economic precariousness of this country
1: yeah so i mean when we were launching the poor people's campaign we we said that we really need to do this moral inventory we need to do this social, political, economic inventory um, to be able to see what is really going on and what has gone on over the past fifty years, where poverty has almost become a where a, a curse word, where 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 no one really talks about the poor or poverty. Right. And um, what we found in this audit, um, and again working with the Institute for Policy Studies, working with um, economic policy Institute and some other you know uh, prominent In-tanks, think yeah. tanks across the country, we we. We found just that you know there's 140 million people who are poor and low income just using the Supplemental Poverty Measure um, that the U.S. Census Bureau um, has put out. Um, Because what we're saying is that the the poverty line um, and the way to come up with the poverty line is is dated, is inaccurate. Right? I mean, it was developed in 1964. Um, it's about three times the U.S. food, uh, a family's food budget, right? Um, so that uh, doesn't cu- take into account housing. It doesn't take into account transportation costs. It doesn't take into account, you know, healthcare and many of the most expensive needs. And so, you know, what what we found was that, you know, it's, it's about half of the U.S. population that is experiencing poverty or, or something very close to it. Um, what we found is that, you know, Unlike the, um, the CARES Act saying that there's 500,000 right. uh, homeless people, there's more like 8 to 11 million homeless people, and that's probably too small. Um, uh, uh, it, we found that, you know, that that um, there's so many low-wage workers um, that there are many folks that are having to work two, three jobs um, just to make it Um and so there's 62 million workers who are making less than a living wage. Um, we found just really a whole, and it's not like a list in terms of you know just. It, I mean, it goes on numbers, and on, yeah. but 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 you know it's just these interlocking injustices, and so you see the connection between the states. There's been um, 26 states um, since 2010, so before Trump, right, uh, that have passed racist voter suppression laws, oh, um, yes. and then those states are not surprisingly the states that have the least environmental protections, have the least LGBTQ rights, have the highest poverty, have the least living wages, um, um, have the lowest minimum wages right in the, in the country. And, and so you see again, this way that all of these problems kind of come together, um, Uh, and and show uh, a deeply um, unequal society and an impoverished democracy um, uh, that we're living in.
0: Yeah, that's not really functioning well. And I I remember when I was in the uh, New Hampshire State Senate, they talk about free and reduced lunch programs. And the line of poverty was beyond belief. I, I mean, it's just from 1964... And good old uh, Treasury Secretary Mnookin says $1,200, oh, they should be able to live for 10 weeks or so on that. They just have no idea. Let them eat cake, I've heard, somewhere, right? Uh, and it, it, it's not just the, re- the Republicans. I mean, some hyper-rich are so married to the belief that people who are not well-off don't deserve anything. They're seen as undeserving we remember Reagan's intentionally demeaning description of welfare queens, Uh-huh. and the Democrats too. They took it, you know, Bill Clinton in the 1990s had his egregious and really punishing welfare reforms. Of course, that serves to lock in the division of Americans. And so you write, for decades, both political parties have pushed the narrative that illness, homelessness, poverty and inequality are minor aberrations in an otherwise healthy society. I bet most people still believe that. It, it assumes that the everyday mechanics of our society are, as you note, fundamentally strong. And and you further say it should be no longer possible to ignore the structural crisis of poverty and inequality that has been eating away at American society for the, over these last decades. Maybe this coronavirus Will will amplify that? I'm not sure I'm seeing it yet. What were your thoughts?
1: Yeah, so I mean I think that the the what we're seeing is that people are are good. Um and people want to live in a fair and just society. It's it's our politicians, it's the, the very most wealthy who then put out this deserving versus undeserving kind of myth. Um but but what I'm finding is amongst you know these essential workers. I mean, you hear these stories after story of people that are going and making almost no money, but yes. who are doing it because they feel like they need not just the money for themselves and their families, but they wanna they wanna do a social good. They wanna you know if if they're an orderly at a at a hospital, they wanna they wanna do their job. If they're a a, a nursing assistant, they wanna be there to serve people. If they're a grocery worker, uh, they know that people need food. If they're a sanitation worker, they know that that we need to you know keep our society um, you know as clean as we can in this moment, right? And and I think that 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 amongst the the people I spend my time with, mm-hmm. amongst leaders across this country, you know, who are living in raw sewage, who are who are in homeless encampments, who are working, you know, two, three jobs or, or right now aren't because they, they're now in the unemployment lines, whether like people are still really believe that everybody deserves the right to live. Um, but that isn't the narrative that's coming from our dominant and sure. even media these days. And so I think that I often get a chance to, to, to hear and experience, you know, a powerful um uh, movement of people where folks, you know, are every day, not just fighting to make their lives better, but really trying to, to fight for the soul of this society. Um, and, and and I want folks to know that there, there are people out there. And again, there are people who have, you know, in the words of Dr. King, little or even nothing to lose. But, you know, he says that if the poor can be helped to take action together. They will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. And I think what we're seeing in this pandemic is exactly that, is that those essential workers whose wages do not say that they're essential, you know, those um, homeless leaders who are trying to find a way to, to help everybody in their communities, those uninsured families, um, are are making powerful justice fights right now and and our nation should pay some attention to that and should get on board with fighting for justice and equality for everyone right now because there's a movement growing and and we want people um to to connect up with that movement and the poor people's campaign is in 43 states and so there are people that are organizing kind of everywhere
0: and and the still the 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 you know, you hear people doing their jobs because they care, and I think that is the majority of Americans, really. But there are people who have the strings of power, who control things, that still see that, uh, you know, the structure is okay, it's a good structure. They're just aberrations from the good structure. And that's gonna, that's a heavier lift, I think, to, to make people who have the power really see that and the more people organize uh you know at the uh, lower levels the more that that works but uh the structural crisis goes on and is is not addressed reagan you know had his view Uh, bill clinton had his view it's it's got to be pushed and and as we know i mean FDR, one of my favorite presidents, when he was talking about ending uh, uh, segregation and discrimination uh, when it came to black people working on trains, told A. Philip Randolph, the the head of the union, I'm with you. I don't remember the exact words. I'm with you. I'm all for you. Now go out there and make me do it. People think that they're not powerless, but you have to go out there and make it safe for the politicians to think, oh, the people want this, therefore I can do it. Because if they don't get that... Let's face it, you know it's not going to happen as much. And uh, you you mentioned and, and morals are a big big part here. And I want to talk about that. In this gilded age, you know that this you note that this economic order becomes a genuine moral scandal the moment attention is focused on the three billionaires who possess more wealth than the bottom half of society. End of your quote. Now many of us are aware that your colleague, the Reverend Barber, has been holding Moral Mondays for the last few years. Is that getting through? Do people care about morals or just profits?
1: Is it working? And what we found um, is that, you know, in uh, 2018, the Poor People's Campaign um, uh, uh, started, like basically kind of launched with a... Uh, um, a massive and expansive wave of nonviolent civil disobedience. We did Moral Mondays, um, for six weeks in a row in 40 states across the country. Um, some of it was modeled after the North Carolina Ford Together Moral Mondays movement. Um, it also, you know, uh, had taken lessons from the homeless union movement, the welfare rights movement, um, other movements of, of, uh, of poor people organizing across this country, um, and, and taking up this moral struggle, right? Um, Raising these moral issues of of why is it um, perfectly legal to to die on the homeless on the streets homeless but it's illegal to move into an abandoned house um, when there's more abandoned luxury housing units in this country than there are even homeless people um, so so this kind of taking up this moral struggle um, and and having people engage in what we call moral fusion direct action um, fusion is is kind of coming out of the Reconstruction movement, um, where poor white and poor black and and poor rural and poor urban um, folks across the South, you know, really put together some very progressive um, state constitutions and and were building a a fusion movement that was then, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, stopped in its tracks because of the power of, of poor People coming together across race and geography mm. um, in this country, um, and so it's moral, it's fusion, and then it's engaged in direct action. Because again, how do you how do you kind of call attention to the real moral issues of our day? How do you, you know, get people uh, working in concert together to to um, to put out um, that a different. Uh, world is possible and that people are, are building it, but by, by engaging in, in bold and creative direct action. And so the Poor Campaign launched with 40 days of, of moral fusion direct organizing and, and, and we were the, the most expansive and the largest, um, nonviolent civil disobedience, um, series of actions in the 21st century. Um, and folks have continued to organize and what we're finding is, you know, 15 national faith bodies have joined with us about 100 uh, uh labor unions and national organizations have joined um and that you know our ranks are growing every day including during this crisis um because folks actually are very attracted to a, a, a moral framing mm. um and not just a framing um it's not just words it's it's, it's action right um that that people are clear that things have not been going uh, the way that they, we need them to go, um, but but how do we kind of uh, connect folks and empower folks to be able to you know take action together? And and so indeed that that is happening, and the poor people's campaign is organizing for a mass poor people's assembly and moral march on Washington, and it's going to be on June twentieth. Now uh-huh. we had originally before this pandemic. Uh, plan to convene in person in in Washington D.C. and and we've moved it online. And what we're calling for is the largest online gathering of poor and low income people, people of conscience, people of faith, people of moral character, activists, advocates, organizers, um, to you know come onto this mass poor people's assembly and moral march on Washington on June 20th online um, and take part in a historic. A moment when we can put out again not just the sad stories, not just an analysis of what's wrong, but but shine light on on what it would take and what we have in our means and at our disposal to be able to to have everybody with the right to live, to to be able to to really solve these problems. Um, and again, we have the stories and the solutions out there, um, and what we're trying to do is build power around them.
0: And as you're growing up with, with your mother, you know, who you are, you have a right to live, even if you have these difficult uh, uh, situations. And, you know, Bernie Sanders pushed for Medicare for All. A lot of us have. You said that the healthcare system has been further privatized. Public housing has been demolished. Public water and sanitation systems have been held hostage by emergency managers. The social safety net has been eviscerated and that the core government functions have been turned over to the private sector. In fact, where the reverse has happened, and it has, where, public, where private utilities are turned over to municipal control, it has served the public much better. This municipalization is happening in small numbers all across the country. Public control over what have become public necessities seems an obvious answer. I would think the call for Medicare for all would resonate a lot better now than ever. Is this part of the moral solution to have more public control over what really is public?
1: I mean, what we're hearing, again, from impacted communities all across this country is yes, right? Folks want, uh, health care as a human right and need single-payer universal health care um, folks um, know that we need um, uh, municipalities and cities and uh, to, to have public control over utilities and water um, and, and to spend off the privatization of those yes. um, but we need that right we need it in healthcare. we need it in the oil and gas industry we need it in and um, we need it in water and utilities and 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 we need to move from the private to the public, um, and not vice versa. Um, because again, the public options of, of these, of these programs are always better. Um, uh, you know, they, um, public education is, is better than charter schools. Not just because, um, because you're not trying to make a profit off of something, but because you're trying to actually, uh, carry out your, your, your division of labor and your, and your needed task. Right. Um, and, and that's true when it comes to libraries, when it comes to sanitation departments, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to the that these shouldn't be about profit tiering and, and private um, property. This, this should be about um, public goods. And again, you know uh, we, we can have this it's within reach. Yes. Uh, if we, if we didn't just try to bail out wall street and the very rich um the money that um you know that even in the first um federal stimulus to wall street before any of these four packages that money could have uh expanded medicaid expansion in every state and it could have actually brought about universal health care um that money could could forgive all student debts right now immediately right so it's not that we can't do any of these things we have the money we have the resources we even have ideas of how you do it um but right now what's happening is that the 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 rich and the the large corporations are getting to 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 determine um that that's better to line their pockets than to provide for the people
0: and philanthropy and charity is is all nice and good but it locks in place the the system which really has faults and is not working and you know it's not just by being nice to people in lower ends of the income scale we need people to do the work to pick the produce to pick up the garbage to teach things like that this is in our own best interest it's not just charity hasn't and you ask this good question hasn't the time finally come to reject the false narrative of scarcity. Isn't it time to demand a transformative moral agenda that reaches from the bottom up? Is it possible that the spreading plague, the clear disparity between the rich and poor regarding the ability to cope with this disease might actually be a wake-up call where this silence has long existed, you know, just sweeping the problem under the rug?
1: So, I mean, to me, this is the question of our day. you know, for years and years, I've been doing grassroots anti-poverty work. And for years and years, the answer has been, you can't end poverty because where would you find the resources? And we put together a powerful poor people's moral budget and showed, you know, if we cut the military budget in half, um, we still have a larger military than Iran, Russia, China, and North Korea combined. Um, if If we tax those that could really afford it the most and we um, repeal the 2017, you Amen. know, uh, tax cuts for the rich. Um, and if we invest in programs, invest, right, exactly. um, invest in health care for all, if we invest in good public education, you know, every dollar spent in early childhood education actually saves this country $7 in the future. Right, so dude, these are good investments, right? We we actually make a stronger economy if we invest in things like food and education and living wage jobs, yeah. right? Every if we were to raise people's wages immediately, effective um, tomorrow to fifteen dollars an hour or more, um, that would bring uh, you know the minimum wage for fifteen dollars sure, sure. or more, that would bring almost four hundred million dollars into the economy. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just immediately, and, and, and that's amongst people that would then have to be spending it, right? Not just hoarding it right. for themselves, you know. <laughs> that, Increasing so demand that would that would inc- exactly that would increase, you know, small businesses yep. and bodegas yep. and grocery stores, you know. Um, that would, um, and so again, if if we just did those things, if we cut the military budget, yep. if we if we tax those who can afford it the most. And if we invested in the kinds of programs that actually our whole society needs that we couldn't just end poverty we can't we can't we wouldn't just you know stop ecological devastation we wouldn't just you know turn our war economy into a peace economy it would be a better resounding effect to everybody everybody um uh, in in the society it's it's you know we have this saying in the poor People's Campaign, which is when you lift from the bottom, everybody rises ah. um and this is, this is true—you know, I'm actually—my Ph.D. is in the in, in Bible, um, and this is true in, in biblical text as well. Um, you know, what Deuteronomy 15 teaches us is that if you, um, if you pay your workers the right wages, if you forgive debts, if you release slaves, and if you lend out money knowing you might never get it back, that your whole society will flourish. Right, um, and 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 just over and over again, we have from economists, we have from sociology, have even from the Bible. You know, over and over, we learn that that if you actually lift from the bottom, if you put forward a stimulus package that that really puts in the forefront the needs and the and the demands of those most poor, yeah. most marginalized, that that actually helps everybody.
0: Well, before we end and we just got a couple minutes. If people are interested in the poor people's campaign and that march that's coming up, what you got on the internet.
1: So, you can go to poorpeoplescampaign.org, um poorpeoplescampaign or campaign.org. Um you can uh, find out any information, you can sign up to to join the campaign at, at large and get connected to to your own state. Um New Hampshire has a Poor People's Campaign Coordinating yeah, Committee, um, uh, and, and also uh, you know 43 states in the country have them, right? Um, so, so there's that. You can also text the word MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975, um, and they'll be automatically added to our list, um, ah. and you can get updates about what's happening. Um, what the Poor People's Campaign is doing. And on June 20th, we need everybody to tune in to yeah. PoorPeople'sCampaign.org for this mass Poor People's Assembly and Moral March on Washington. You can sign up now and get alerts about the 50 days of action that we're planning up until that point um, and many of the different uh, organizing um, events that are happening in your communities and online. Um, next Thursday, the 30th of April, we're having a mass meeting Um, just like the historic mass meetings of the civil rights movement, but this one will be online. So go to poorpeoplescampaign.org. You can also find us on Facebook or on Twitter, on Instagram. Um, And then I'm also with the Cairo Center, Uh um, and Reverend Barber is with Repairers of the Breach, and we're both online, um, and you can find out more information about getting involved, you know, even as you shelter in place um, uh, in, in a movement that is growing across this country.
0: We are not powerless. We have a lot of power. Uh, Reverend Liz uh, Theo, Theo Harris, thank you so much for being with us. Her book is called uh, "Always with Us: What Jesus Really Said About the Poor." Thank you so much, and let's hope we're doing good thank stuff. Thank you. <laughs> Show me a prison. Show me. Show me a prison man whose fate-